close your eyes unless you're driving. Try to imagine a corporate boardroom. What do you see? The ultimate bosses of a company. Probably a big table. Windows. Good coffee, of course. These are the people who run multi-million dollar companies. But who do you envision as those people? Most likely, white and male. I'm Gustavo Arellano. You're listening to The Times, daily news from the LA Times. It's Thursday, October 14th, 2021. The image of a boardroom full of white men isn't accurate, but it's not that far off the mark. A new study by the Alliance for Board Diversity found that as of 2018, people of color held well below 20% of Fortune 500 company board seats nationwide. Women were also way underrepresented, filling less than a quarter of those board seats. But now, if a publicly traded company is based in California, its board can't be all men. There's got to be at least one woman, and soon, at least one non-white or LGBT person. And the minimums grow as the rules phase in. These requirements are California state laws, and they're having effects all over the country. Today, we examine the topic with LA Times national reporter Evan Halper. And we also talk with someone who has frequently found herself the first woman or person of color or first woman in color on the boards that she has served on. Evan Halper covers the way California policy influences the rest of the country. As part of that, he wrote about the influence of SB 826. That was a 2018 California State Senate bill that required corporations in the state to have at least one woman on their board of directors. Evan, welcome to The Times. Hi, Gustavo. Thanks for having me. So the movement to get women and people of color into positions of power like corporate boardrooms, I mean, this has been going on for decades and generations, really. So what was the genesis of that specific 2018 bill? Well, I think what happened was they looked at the numbers and they were just so dismal. I mean, at a time that so many women held such powerful positions and had so much influence in business and government everywhere else, it was something like 16% of the seats on California corporate boards were held by women. And one other thing worth noting is that this started in 2013 with advocates saying, okay, let's pass a non-binding resolution to say, corporations, you need to do better. They passed this non-binding resolution. They waited five years. And during that five years, pretty much nothing happened. (laughs) Women's representation went from 15.5% to 16%, literally over five years. With the bill, though, the numbers increased far better than that. Yeah. So the bill was passed in 2018. It took effect soon after. It requires sort of a steady increase in the number of women on boards, including this year. You know, one of these increases takes effect. Now, more than a quarter of the board positions are held by women. Advocates say still not enough, considering the contributions women are making in business. But that's a steep jump from 16 percent just a few years ago. Besides the general idea that, you know, equality is important, what do the bill's proponents argue in favor of mandating those diversity and gender positions on corporate boards? Like, how would the rest of us benefit? Sure, that's an excellent question. Well, luckily, because these mandates have been around for a while in Europe, which started down this path more than a decade ago, there have been all kinds of studies about what this means for companies. There is some dispute about whether it increases their bottom line, but there's talk about It's not really just the financial bottom line, but the ethical bottom line, the bottom line in terms of how connected a company is to society. And does it help the company? Generally, the studies have found that governance in all of these companies, when they add the number of women on the board, improves. That kind of groupthink that can plague corporate America starts to dissipate, and these perspectives help. And of course, many of these companies, their consumers are women. So it helps to have more women on their boards. 
Yeah, you're trying to reflect at the highest echelons of your corporation, the people who are actually making your corporation possible by supporting it with their money. Exactly. And one other thing I should say is that for a long time, these companies, when they looked at their boards, all they looked at was like, does this person have what we call C-suite experience? Were they a CEO? Were they a COO? And that's always these white men are in these jobs. And so it's like the same networks of people kept getting onto these boards. But a lot has been happening in recent years, as you know. I mean, we're going through this racial reckoning. Companies are having to deal with transparency and how they're confronting climate change. There's all kinds of new requirements for socially what companies are doing and what they have to disclose. And also companies are dealing with cybersecurity threats, all these kinds of new cultural issues that companies were not necessarily worried about at the board level that now they are. And so when they just closed off the boards to these C-suite executives, you know, you're closing off a whole category of potential board members who have all kinds of experience in these issues that companies are grappling with. California's governor at the time, Jerry Brown, he signed a 2018 law that requires boards to include women, even though he said that he thought it was legally dubious that it might not stand up in court. So why did he sign it? He basically said he looked at the numbers like we were talking about before, 2013 to 2018, that corporate boards were not doing anything. They were not changing. Companies were saying they would change, but they just weren't doing it. We were also in the Me Too movement at the time. There was a lot happening and Trump was president and he was pushing back against the Me Too movement. And Jerry Brown just said, look, corporations are not getting the message. Washington's not getting the message. This may be legally problematic, but what else are we going to do at this point? We need to do something. We need to get the country moving in the right direction. So I'm signing this thing and we'll see what happens in court. Evan, then and now there's opposition to California's 2018 gender diversity law. In fact, there's a pending lawsuit to declare it unconstitutional, just like Governor Brown predicted. Who doesn't like the rule and what are they saying? What's interesting about these lawsuits is that you have these conservative legal foundations filing. They are against this ideologically. They're against this. They say their quotas. They say this is not the way that companies should be diversifying. So the Pacific Legal Foundation filed the major one in California. But one of the interesting things about that lawsuit is that they were not able to find a single California company to sign on as a plaintiff. Companies don't want to be involved in fighting this law. The numbers are embarrassing to corporate America that there's so few women on these boards, so few people of color, and they're not looking to pick this fight. You are seeing members of Congress, 12 senators signed a letter opposing any of these kinds of mandates or quotas. It was interesting, it was 11 men and one woman, all of them Republicans. So politically, this still plays with the base. This is a flashpoint in the culture wars, but in corporate America, where this matters most, you're just not seeing companies clamor to resist these mandates. And you're seeing now other states following California's lead on the matter of mandating diversity on the corporate boardrooms. Absolutely. Several states are looking at imposing California-type rules. I mean, California's is unique in that it includes these mandates, whereas some other states in Washington has a mandate now, too, Washington State. Some other states are, what they're doing is they're requiring transparency. So they're saying to companies, you need to tell us how many women, how many people of color are on your corporate board. And if you don't meet these numbers that we think you should have, you need to explain to your shareholders why your board is still all white men or why you haven't don't have any women on the board. So that kind of peer pressure, talking to consultants, they say that's just as effective as California's mandate. People do not want to have to tell their investors, we just couldn't find women for our board. And NASDAQ, the stock exchange, they're doing something like that as well. We're telling people or these companies, hey, we're going to list you, but you have to have some diversity or just tell us why not. So why haven't these companies fully diversified on their own? Why is it that we have to have lawmakers push for this, make these mandates, lay out the requirements and the deadlines? 
Yeah, I think it's inertia in corporate America. I talked to one woman who was on a couple of boards and she said, look, people are comfortable going with people who look like them, people who they know. And this is sort of a system where you just have had these white guys have been in these positions forever. There's not that much turnover on boards, I should say. These positions can last a long time and not that many openings come up. So what's happened also is that companies that are under pressure to put women on boards, when they weren't doing this before, but now they're creating extra positions on their boards. I mean, hundreds of them have been created so that they can have a woman. And of course, California in 2020 passed another law requiring that boards have people from traditionally underrepresented groups. That could be people of color, people who are gay, people who are trans. Same thing there. You're seeing companies that are creating positions so that they can meet these mandates. And usually what happens with boards, at least what I've seen, is that the same people tend to be on different boards because the people who are picking the board members are like, well, you're already on a board, so we're going to pick you. And they tend to be white men as opposed to any diverse candidates or even younger candidates. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, these are great jobs. You know, you only meet a few times a year. You get paid, I think, a six-figure stipend. (laughs) You're kind of the boss, but you have another job on top of this. And it's just kind of an occasional thing where you just get paid a bunch of money. I mean, it's a serious responsibility, but it's a very lucrative position. And so they tend to go to friends of people they know who are already on the board. And of course, the people who are running these companies, they're comfortable with people that they feel like they know and they can trust are not going to buck the tide or question them. And so you create this kind of groupthink and it's resulted in boards just not being diverse until suddenly California stepped in and then others are now stepping in and telling companies, you need to fix this. Thank you so much for this interview, Evan. It was great to be here, Gustavo. Thank you. Next up, a pioneer in diversifying corporate boards speaks. Dr. Maria Rivas is chief medical officer at EMD Serono. She's a leader in the advocacy group 5050 Women on Boards, which wants gender equity in corporate boardrooms. Dr. Rivas, welcome to The Times. Thank you, Gustavo. It's a pleasure to meet you. So very basic question. What does a corporate board do and why should regular people like me care about why there should be more gender and racial diversity in them? That's a really good question, Gustavo. Public companies have a very big responsibility. We need corporate boards to act in the most high integrity way and fulfill several duties, in particular in terms of financial oversight and also oversight on other matters that remain true to the value of what the company will provide society. And part of that, I would assume, is that companies should reflect or at least better treat the people that they are selling stuff to, that they're trying to be a part of their daily lives? Well, I think a company's success depends definitely on providing the appropriate services or products to their customers. And those need to be in tune with what the customers need. And also how they look like. Well, yeah, a company, I think, definitely would value learning more about their customers. And to do that, They need to have employees that are reflective of the society that the companies serve, and ideally also a board that is aligned and definitely empathetic to the needs of the customers. How did you decide that becoming a board member was something that you aspired to do, and how were you able to get onto your first corporate board? First of all, I admired tremendously the work that our corporate board was doing in the company that I work for. 
And essentially throughout my professional life, I've worked with very good companies and seen that the boards can add tremendous value to steer in, let's say, ways that ultimately really contribute not just to the well-being of the company and the profit of the company, but also the well-being of the society. And I thought, well, here I am. I'm already on a senior executive path. What else can I contribute to um, to society, but at the same time remain in the space of corporate world that I know so well? And I figured I should explore more what a board director does day to day and started educating myself and connecting with other individuals who are now more experienced than I am in board governance. So you go to a board and say, hey, I want to be on a board. Pick me, please. (laughs) Oh, no, no, no. It's not that simple. (laughs) I wish. Yeah. Well, public companies, again, I have a huge responsibility and their missions are very diverse in themselves. You know, some are dedicated to energy. Others are dedicated to consumer goods. Others are dedicated to food. So depending on the industry, essentially each company needs a very different type of board expertise that is able to promote the mission and the well-being of that company in the future. And for that, boards are not interested in generalists. They're interested in people that bring a certain expertise that is immediately helpful and directly related to the mission and the future of that company. So it wasn't so simple as to pick up the phone. I really needed to explore which types of companies and which types of boards perhaps my expertise would be helpful to. After you got that first board position, did it make it easier to join other boards? Like other boards could say, okay, this person is doing good on that particular board. Maybe we could get their expertise or in your case, your expertise and have it with us. Yes, you're pointing out to a very interesting phenomenon. And it's probably the reason why we've had a bit of the situation where we lack diversity on the boards. And it is that once you are on a board, you are already a more attractive candidate because you're perceived to have experience. You know exactly what kinds of difficult issues corporate board directors tackle. And you know how to behave at that executive level, and you know exactly how to support the executive management that leads that company in their mission. And you get a reputation and you get more opportunities. Now, in the past, as you know, these were primarily opportunities for essentially men primarily and mostly white men, because in the past, also companies sought mostly individuals who had CEO experience. And unfortunately, there was also a lack of diversity in the CEO ranks. So it was a kind of a self-perpetuating problem until very recently, I think, you know, companies have started to realize, again, they need to really start living and breathing more like their constituents or their consumers. And as such, you've seen this movement to now diversify the board But now we need to continue to make an effort not to be satisfied with essentially recycling the same more diverse candidates that are now entering boards, but rather infusing those boards with even newer candidates so we can get to a critical mass where boards in public companies, particularly in the U.S., start reflecting what our society looks like. We'll be back after this break. I'm not a member of any corporate board, but I've been in spaces where I was only Latino, the only Latino in that particular room. And sometimes I'd be there and catch myself and thinking, 
Like, do I belong here? Like, I, I kind of feel uncomfortable. People call it imposter syndrome. So I know you've been in positions where you were the only woman, only person of color, only Latina on the board. So did you ever have any issues with imposter syndrome? <laughs> oh, that's an interesting topic. Yeah, actually, not only in the board, but actually in senior roles in pharmaceuticals where I have spent the last 21, 22 years I'm oftentimes the only woman in the room and the only Latina in the executive group. And it is a big responsibility. It definitely, at times, earlier in my career, I felt, well, do I belong? Do I have what it takes? Luckily, through mentorship and good sponsorship also, you know, we all need allies. And also in the corporate ranks and in board roles, we also need allies and individuals who act as allies can do tremendous good in really bringing up people like me so we don't feel like we're outsiders, but actually that we belong. And I cannot tell you how many times to travel time and time again through the work that I've been able to do through 5050 Women on Boards, which is a wonderful organization. I continue to meet women who have had the same experiences I have. You ultimately get on a board And you suddenly realize you can actually add value, that what you bring, you bring a very interesting and different perspective and that it helps move the dialogue and move the company forward. Being on boards and also seeing other boards without maybe as much diversity as some of the boards that you're at, how do companies change when you have more diversity as opposed to less diversity? So definitely there have been studies about how companies that have diverse executive management and diverse boards tend to perform better in the market. So I think it's really a direct relationship to profit in terms of how you manage your company, how you steer your company, how you govern your company, definitely determines eventually the future of your company with profits. And this has been well studied and well documented time and time again, never mind the goodwill equity that it creates in your consumers. I, for example, recently met this wonderful CEO here in the Boston area where I reside, who is leading a company that essentially is developing a medication for a disease that affects primarily African-Americans around the world. And he realized how important it was to have the right governance for his company and to give the patients, the ultimate consumers, comfort that at the highest level, there are people like them representing their interests. So he's actually incorporated two individuals on his board that represent this kind of patient community. And it's such a powerful message. I'm sure that his company will do very well in the future. I talked to a previous guest about a 2018 California law that mandates public corporations in the state have to have at least one woman on the board of directors. Have you seen that law change boardroom culture nationwide? You know, I started getting more calls, Gustavo. I started getting more calls and other diverse candidates started getting more calls, but women particularly started getting more calls. And we've seen how in the most recent essentially index that the women on board, uh, 50-50 women on board gathers, it's a gender diversity index. The ranks are going up in terms of women on the board, in terms of gender balanced boards, there are more gender balanced boards. There are more boards where there are three or more women, one or more women. And even diversity is going up. It's still low. It's still not at the pace it needs to be for us to be able to say that we are gender balanced on the boardroom or that we have enough diversity in the boardroom. I mean, to give you an example, Latino women representation in the board is less than 2% of the positions in Russell Index 3000. Oh, wow. 
So it's really low. And that's just a Latina. I'm not trying to shine a light on, on just the Latina women. But, you know, we still have a ways to go. You have a ways to go on one hand, but on the other hand, we are getting there. You're seeing more and more representation. So I'm sure yourself having been alone in a lot of these spaces, it's making you happy to see more diversity happening. Oh, God, yes. And we're already working on the next generation. When my daughter grows up to be in a board, you know, she's currently in her late 20s, maybe it looks very different from, I hope, I'm confident that it's going to be very different from what we have right now. Dr. Rivas, thank you so much for this interview. I am so thankful, Gustavo, very much. Nice to meet you. And that's it for this episode of The Times, daily news from the LA Times. Tomorrow, a former Black Panther member speaks. Our show is produced by Shannon Lynn, Denise Guerra, Melissa Kaplan, and Ashley Brown. Our engineer is Mario Diaz. Our editors are Shawnee Hilton and Lauren Rabb. And our theme music is by Andrew Epen. Like what you're listening to? Then make sure to follow The Times on whatever platform you use. Don't make us the Puccia Podcasts. I'm Gustavo Ariano. We'll be back tomorrow with all the news in Desmadre. Gracias. <laughs>